Awesome. Well, it's good, good to be here this morning. We're continuing on with our series of the fruit of the spirit. At the beginning, Pastor Jeff gave us a challenge to memorize Galatians 5, through 23. So hopefully you've been working on that. If you know it, you can say it with me. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So we're going to be talking about the fruit of gentleness today. And as we get started, in 2012, there was a fresco, a painting of Jesus that made international news. The name of this fresco is called Behold the Man. And it is a fresco that depicts Jesus right before his crucifixion in a purple robe with a crown of thorns. And this fresco resides in a Catholic church in Borja, Spain. Now this, uh, this picture, this fresco of Jesus is nearly 100 years old. And because of that, it's not in the greatest condition. Some of the colors have faded. There's some cracks. There's places where the paint has chipped off altogether. And in 2012, it was in desperate need of restoration. And there was one elderly parishioner at this church who was tired of seeing this painting in such disarray. So she decided to take matters into her own hands. At 81 years old, Cecilia decided to take up a new hobby and she was going to try to do fine art restoration. So she snuck into the church and she started working on the fresco. Well, you can imagine how things went, not particularly well. The church called the authorities. Uh, well, yeah, so that's what it looks like. So the, ch <laughs> the church called the authorities because they thought someone had vandalized the picture. And as they were figuring all this out and, and investigating, they quickly learned it wasn't vandalized. Cecilia just got to the painting. Now, that finished work, uh, that was not a very good go at fine art restoration, right? That looks like it belongs on the wall of a cave, not the wall of a beautiful Catholic church. So while Cecilia had ample passion for fine art restoration, she had absolutely no talent. And <laughs> I don't know why you were laughing at it. She did it. You saw that. <laughs> so she had no talent. And as word, poor Cecilia, as word got out that this wasn't vandalism, but she had just kind of messed up this work, uh, the story went viral and everyone heard about it. And over the last 10 years, her sleepy town of 5,000 people has had over 130,000 visitors to come meet Cecilia and see the worst art restoration project of all time. Uh, due to Cecilia's attempts at restoring this work, she rendered the original image of Jesus unrecognizable, okay? And here's my point in sharing this story. Uh, the temptation to render a picture or image of Jesus unrecognizable is not just present in the art world. Rather, there's a much bigger danger. And the danger in our culture is taking the biblical portrait and image of Jesus and doing the same thing, recrafting it, redesigning it until we can shape Jesus into a Messiah of our own making. But the problem is the resulting Messiah is so distorted that it doesn't match whatsoever who the true Jesus is, what he's like and what he accomplished. And that is a real danger in our, in our culture and our churches. In our culture right now, there is the attempt to take Jesus and to uh, update him and make him fit with the 21st century world. And depending 
on what part of the country and what church you were attending, you would see this as a problem in our, in our churches as well. There are many different depictions, false depictions, of what Jesus is like in our churches. Maybe you've gone to a church where you've seen the distorted depiction of Jesus as angry Jesus. Angry Jesus is there every Sunday to give you a fresh dose of hellfire and brimstone and to beat your face with the Bible and to remind you that you are awful and he's very angry about it. Maybe you would go to another church and you would encounter political Jesus. Political Jesus is fixated on nation building and he is only concerned with winning culture wars, affecting policy and shaping culture. Or perhaps you would go to a certain mega church and you might encounter genie in a bottle Jesus, right? Genie in a bottle Jesus is there ready to answer our any requests to make our lives better and to give us what we desire. If you were in the Pacific Northwest, there's a good chance you encounter social gospel Jesus. Social gospel Jesus doesn't really care about spiritual things. It's kind of indifferent to sin or salvation, brushes that under the rug, but instead is only focused on righting injustices in our culture. Or even perhaps uh, if you were in a mainline Protestant church, you might, that's on the liberal side, you might encounter inclusivist Jesus. Inclusivist Jesus happily displays a coexist bumper sticker as he's going around, reminding us that all faiths, as long as they are ardent in their beliefs, lead to God. And we need to just stop with this John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and life exclusivism, and just get along and realize Jesus just doesn't really care what you believe. Those are all distorted depictions. They're distorted depictions of Jesus that are rampant within our culture. And these distorted depictions of Jesus are the result of people tampering with the gospel witness until they have recrafted Jesus into an image that doesn't even resemble what scripture portrays. However, we as Christ followers, we want to have an accurate depiction of what Jesus is like. And to do that, our depiction must emerge from the inspired and errant truth of scripture. So this morning, we're going to confront this issue head on. We're going to look at what scripture says Jesus is truly like, what he did, how he operates, and we're going to banish some of those dangerous distortions. So we're going to answer two questions. What is Jesus truly like? And then second of all, what does any of this have to do with the fruit of gentleness? Okay, I, I know you're wondering, but we will get there. I promise I will, I will weave them together. Just be patient with me. There is uh, absolutely no way that we can cram all of what scripture says about Jesus into one sermon. I know I talk fast, but I don't talk that fast, all right? Uh, there is so much that could be said. We could study Jesus for a year and we won't even scratch the surface. I think of what John writes at the end of his gospel where he says, should I have written down everything there is about Jesus, even the books, the volumes of the entire world could not contain all that we can write about Jesus. So we can't do that. So how are we going to proceed? We're going to look at one text that captures what Jesus is like at his, uh, at his deepest core level. This is a passage that tells us what Jesus is like at his heart level. This is an observation that Charles Spurgeon made uh, hundred some years ago. He said, this is the only passage in the New Testament where Jesus self-discloses what he is like in his heart. And when we hear the word heart, uh, we either think of one of two things. We think of an organ that's pumping blood around our body, or we think of the seat of our emotions, kind of follow your heart, the Disney version, right? But in the Bible, that's not what heart means. Cardia, heart, 
is really talking about the essence of what a person is truly like, their core identity. And in this passage, Jesus tells us what he's like at a heart level. So turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 28 through 30. Here's what this passage says. Jesus is speaking here. He says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Uh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love the glimpse of what Jesus uh, shows us he's like on a heart level here. He says, I'm gentle and humble. See, I told you I'd get there. Gentle, he's gentle in heart. Jesus reveals that at his core, he is predisposed to operate out of a posture of gentleness and humility with those who come to him for healing and hope and help. This passage shows us that aside from all of those distorted depictions, what Jesus is truly like is that he's a meek master. And that's our big idea for the morning. Jesus is a meek master. And this is precisely why we're looking at this passage this morning the, the word meek is the same word as gentle in the New Testament. They're interchangeable. Meekness, gentleness, it's the same biblical concept. It's the same fruit. So if we're going to understand what biblical gentleness or meekness is like, then we need to look at the perfect model of meekness, which is Jesus. And we see that very clearly in this passage. So as we proceed, we're going to look at four facets of biblical gentleness, four things that Jesus embodied perfectly. He's going to show us four things that should mark anyone who would be known as gentle. And here's the first facet of biblical gentleness. First thing Jesus shows us, being a gentle person means that you're meek, not weak. Meek, not weak. This isn't anything brand new. If you've ever heard a sermon on gentleness before, you've probably heard this point, but it's worth repeating because this is so often overlooked in our culture. In our culture, gentleness is not valued. We live in a culture that's doggy dog, that's all about domination and being in control. And because of that, gentleness is oftentimes viewed as weakness. You don't want to be a gentle person. Our culture views gentle people kind of like George McFly in Back to the Future, right? You're cowering the corner and just saying, I'm just afraid of confrontation and getting bullied by the world and kicked around like that. You're everyone's doormat if you're gentle. That, that's our culture's depiction of gentleness. But that's not biblical gentleness. That's a false caricature. Biblical gentleness is far more about humility and long-suffering. It's about having one's strength under control. It's not about weakness. It's about meekness and keeping your strength under control. And that's why Jesus is the perfect model of meekness. Jesus always had his strength under control, even when provoked. Jesus didn't fly off the handle. Jesus didn't see red and was controlled by his rage and just lost control of his emotions. Jesus kept his strength under control, allowing him to rightly respond to every situation. One of the most interesting accounts on this level comes from Luke 9, 51 through 56. I just, this is one of those moments you just kind of laugh when you read through the New Testament based on what the people around Jesus did. Here, here's what's going on. Uh, the days are drawing near for Jesus to return uh, to heaven, to be taken up, to be crucified and, and, and to atone for sin. So he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And as he's headed to Jerusalem, he sends out messengers to go ahead of him to a village in Samaria to make preparations for him. 
But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And Jesus said, go ahead and call on the airstrike. No, that's not what he said. Hey, you guys are way more alert than the eight o'clock. They just let me read right on. And they were like, that must have been what he said. But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Okay, so notice what's going on here. Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem and he's trying to make a pit stop in a village in Samaria. And if you know your New Testament, you know that the Samaritans hated the Jews, the Jews hated Samaritans. There was ethnic conflict going on there. And as Jesus enters into this town, he's headed to Jerusalem. They figure out he's a Jew. And because of that, he's met with some racial, racial prejudice. And they say, yeah, no Jews here. We don't want you. So they kick Jesus out and he has to continue on in his journey. So not a great way to be treated. If you were Jesus, how would you respond? I mean, think about that for a moment. Uh, Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He's God, the son, he's fully divine. He was there when they were knit together in their mother's wombs. He is the Lord of the Samaritans, whether they like it or not, and they're kicking him to the curb. How would you respond if you were Jesus? Probably not particularly gentle if you're unsanctified like me, I suppose. I probably wouldn't have responded well. But then notice how James and John respond. Hopefully we're not that bad, right? James and John say, uh, Jesus, these guys, apparently they don't know who you are. So you need to give a, a demonstration. Let's call down a nuclear bomb strike and just eviscerate the village. That sounds fair, right? And Jesus is just looking at me. He's like, what are you talking about? So he rebukes them and says, that, that's not what I'm about. And they, and they go on to another village. That's a perfect example of having strength under control. Could Jesus have called down the nuclear bomb strike on that village if he wanted to? Yes, that was within his purview and power. He had the strength to do that. But did Jesus do that? No. Why not? Because he's meek. He has his power under control. He's gentle and long-suffering. However, we must never confuse Jesus as being gentle for Jesus as being a pushover, okay? Jesus is not a pushover parent who turns a blind eye to sin and unrighteousness. Gentleness cannot mean that Jesus does not take sin seriously because he certainly does. And we see that very clearly in our original passage in Matthew 11. In verses 20 through 24, right before our text, it precedes it. Jesus denounces the cities of Corazon and Bethsaida. And he does so, he says, because of your disbelief, because of your lack of repentance, because of your refusal to trust in me, woe to you, because on the day of judgment, hell is going to swallow you up and it's going to be worse for you than the city of Sodom. Okay, not a great thing if you're the city of Corazon and Bethsaida. Don't really want to hear that from Jesus. But that's a demonstration of Jesus' gentleness can never be confused for Jesus not being just and holy. He is both. Jesus is undeniably gentle, but he is also undeniably holy. But here's an important question to ask then. Why do some people encounter just Jesus while other people encounter gentle Jesus? What's the difference? Why those different presentations? I think Matthew 11 is answering the question. Jesus promises to show meekness and gentleness to anyone who desires a saving relationship with him. If you come in a posture of repentance, neediness, broken and trust, brokenness and trust, Jesus will reveal himself to be a loving and gentle master. 
However, anyone who rejects Jesus and desires to continue living in their sin, they will experience just Jesus. They'll be held accountable for their sin. They'll have to give an account for their rebellion. On the day of judgment, they will face a just and holy Lord, and rightly so. Our experience of Jesus as either gentle or just is totally dependent on our relationship with him. Jesus is Lord of all. He can either be a meek master or he can be a just master. Depends on how, what kind of posture we come to him in. As long as we refuse to accept Jesus as our savior and master, his posture is one of rightly deserved justice. But however, the amazing thing is the moment we come to him and put our trust in him and ask him to be the savior and Lord of our life, we will quickly learn that Jesus interacts with us out of a posture of love and compassion and gentleness. Jesus is a meek master. Just consider how incredible that is and how often we fail to view Jesus that way. As we continue on in our passage, we're not, looking, we're not going to be looking at how Jesus deals with all people. We're specifically going to look at how Jesus deals with those who would claim to be Christ's followers, those who belong to him. And we're going to see how he deals with us with unspeakable gentleness. So first of all, we see that biblical gentleness means that we're meek, not weak. But second of all, if you belong to Jesus, realize that his gentleness means that he is forgiving, not furious. Forgiving, not furious. As a follower of Jesus, how do you envision Jesus responding to you when you sin? Now, I'm going to let that sit for a moment and linger because I actually want you to think about that. As a follower of Jesus, when you sin, how do you envision Jesus responding to you? Now, as a pastor, I do a lot of discipleship and decent amount of counseling. And in those interactions, I can tell you 99% of people view Jesus when they sin and mess up as a mad master rather than a merciful master. They have forgiving Jesus or furious Jesus in their mind rather than forgiving Jesus when they've fallen into sin. Just think of what furious Jesus looks like. Furious Jesus is filled with disgust and revulsion. He shakes his head with exasperation at our weakness and imperfection. Furious Jesus is quick to tell us how disappointed he is with us and how we should know better and do better. Furious Jesus will forgive, but just not immediately. You got to grovel in your shame and sorrow for an appropriate amount of time and do enough stuff to show that you're adequately penitent in heart and deserving of his grace. Furious Jesus will give more grace and mercy, but it's tight-fisted and begrudging because you should have this figured out by now. Now, if we're being honest, how many of us have envisioned Jesus that way or currently envision Jesus that way when we stumble and sin in our spiritual lives? You know, I'll be the first to admit <clears throat> that I've struggled with seeing Jesus as a mad master over a meek master in my spiritual journey, especially early on. Um, when I sinned, I truly felt like Jesus was always furious with me. There was kind of a eternal fury that Jesus felt towards me, which means when I sinned, guess what I did? Did I run to Jesus? Nope. I ran away from Jesus. Did I ask for Jesus for help? No, I hid. When, when we have a picture of furious Jesus in our lives, all we think of is that when Jesus looks at me, he's filled with disappointment and frustration rather than mercy and grace. And honestly, it's natural for us to feel this way and envision Jesus this way because, first of all, that's how we treat other people. 
and we just project onto Jesus how we've been treated and how we treat others. But second of all, it's logical. I did, I messed up, I failed, I'm broken, therefore I deserve fury. I deserve Jesus to be furious with me. But that's the beauty of the gospel message. Jesus is not in the business of giving us what we deserve. That's the whole message of the gospel. That's why Jesus came to earth in the first place. Jesus came so that he could allow us to experience radical forgiveness and abundant grace. On the cross, Jesus was rejected so that we might be accepted. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken so that we might be forgiven. On the cross, Jesus was sacrificed so that we might be sanctified. On the cross, Jesus was broken so that we might be made whole. On the cross, Jesus bore the totality of our sin and shame so our sin problem can be dealt with once and for all. And that's the reason Jesus doesn't have to be furious with us anymore. The just fury of God was satisfied on the cross. Our sins, past, present, and future were atoned for. They were done. And God's, uh, God's righteous fury could then be satisfied and replaced with radical forgiveness. That is the goal of the gospel message. Which means when we enter into a relationship with Jesus, when we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. So when we sin, we don't have to hide and fear that sin being revealed for the sin has already been revealed at the cross. When we come to Jesus in contrition, we never have to fear that we'll be met with derision. When we come to Jesus in our shame and sorrow, he will always meet us with grace and gentleness and forgiveness. Just consider a biblical example of John 21. John 21 is one of those amazing passages that we should go back to over and over in our spiritual lives because it gives us another glimpse of what Jesus is like. John 21 takes place a couple weeks after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And from the account leading up to Jesus' death and betrayal, we recognize that the apostles made some mistakes. Jesus is meeting with his apostles the night of his betrayal and arrest, and he tells them that before the end of the night, you're all going to abandon me. And, and 11 of the apostles had the sense to keep their mouths shut. But Peter speaks up, right? And Peter says, though, okay, G Jesus, between you and me, yeah, these, these 11 are kind of the B, the, the, they're, they're the, they're the B level apostles. I get it. But, but Peter's not going to ditch you. Like, no matter what, I'm going to stick with you. And then Jesus responds and he says, no, Peter, you too. And Peter has the audacity to say, no, Jesus, I would die before I abandon you. And Jesus says, before the night ends and the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times, right? Flash forward, Jesus is betrayed, arrested, mock trial. Peter follows at a distance. He's scared, warming himself by the fire. People recognize him, say, hey, you're one of those Galilean guys hanging out with Jesus. He says, no, he says, no. Third time he says, I swear under heaven, curses on myself, yada, yada, yada. I don't know the man. And right when that happens, the rooster crows and Jesus looks across the courtyard and makes eye contact with Peter. And what does Peter do? Breaks down and runs away. Okay. So all of this, all this has taken place. Huge moral failure, as bad as it gets. Now, if you're Peter and you, you haven't got to spend a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with Jesus since that moment. And since then, he has proven himself to be Lord of all by dying, being buried and rose again. How are you feeling? Not good, right? Not particularly great. You're not like, oh boy, can't wait to see Jesus. Because chances are, if you're Peter, you're just playing through your mind what that's going to look like. 
He's going to be furious. He's going to be angry. I, I'm going to have that exposed. Not only that, he's probably going to kick me off the apostolic team because I was such a loser. Like he was probably furious. So what does Peter do? He runs away. He runs away. He says, I'm going fishing. And he gets his fishing nets and goes back to his old life. And what does Jesus do? Well, clearly Jesus says, good, all you're cut out to be is a fisherman. Go back to what you're good. No, no, not what Jesus says, right? Jesus pursues Peter. Jesus initiates the reconciliation process. Jesus goes to Peter hideout and initiates this heartfelt conversation with him. And in the biblical account, Jesus doesn't erupt in anger. Jesus doesn't take the Bible and smack Peter across the face. It's not what happens, right? He initiates a gracious, forgiving conversation where he exposes the sin, but not only that, he restores Peter. He has Peter rearticulate his love for him and he tells Peter, it's time to get off the bench and back to serving me. Go and feed my sheep. You are forgiven. You are restored. Jesus responds with unspeakable gentleness to Peter. And this account reminds us that Jesus' goal with his followers is restoration, not retaliation. Jesus is a meek master abounding in forgiveness for his faithful followers. Now, there are times where Jesus has to give us a spiritual spanking. That's true. Hebrews 12 tells us he does that. But it's all about the posture in which he does that. It's not out of anger and fury. It's not out of retaliation. It's always out of a posture of reconciliation. He, he gives us spiritual discipline when we're running away from him to bring us back to him. But when we are humble and contrite and confess our sin, this, the spiritual discipline has accomplished its goal and we are met with radical forgiveness. When we think of how Jesus envisions us when we, res, when we fall into sin, I want us to think of John 21. He deals gently with those who are truly contrite and broken over the sin and ask for forgiveness. Now, I anticipate an objection here. There might be some people out there, probably no one here, but maybe someone listening online, those online worshipers. And there's someone thinking, um, that sounds an awful lot like cheap grace. Well, you're just, that sounds cheap to me. How can you, Jesus not feel, you got, you got to show him you mean it. You need a little, that sounds like cheap grace. And all I would say is, I'm just, I'm just repeating the apostle Paul. In the book of Romans, Paul articulates the same message and he anticipates objections. He says, there might be some people saying, well, won't this just be a license to sin? And Paul doesn't even answer the question. He just says, may it never be, dumb question, let's move on. That's Paul, okay, that's what Paul says. And what he means by that is, if you really think that Jesus' radical forgiveness is a license to sin, you've missed the entire point of the gospel anyway. And you need to check yourself. Because I did throw a caveat in there. Anyone who comes to Jesus with a broken and contrite heart over their sins, he will deal gently with. If we're coming to him with a proud and arrogant spirit that says, I'm going to live however I want, I just expect you to forgive me, you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. That, that's not what it is. But if, if we're broken, if we're living out Romans 7, right? If we're living in the already not yet tension, we are already saved, we're already declared to be children of God, but guess what? We are not yet fully sanctified and glorified. And Romans 7 is a reality. I do the things I don't want to do, the things I do want to do, I don't do. A wicked man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then there's Romans 8, 1, isn't there? There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. If you're living in the tension of I am not perfect and I struggle and I fail and I'm broken over it, good news, Jesus is a meek master who wants to forgive you and give you what you need to follow him. We never have to be afraid to come to Jesus for grace, mercy, 
and forgiveness when we come with a posture of humility and repentance. So that's our second facet. Moving on to our third facet of gentleness. Jesus shows us that a gentle person is compassionate, not calloused. Compassionate, not calloused. Look again at our text for this morning in Matthew 11. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Notice who Jesus' invitation for rest and reprieve is directed towards, those who are weary and burdened. To understand this passage properly, we need to know what those two categories represent. Weary and burdened. They're different words in Greek, and they're not poetic uh, symbolism or symmetry there. They, they are, they're, uh, they're giving different aspects. So first of all, what does it mean to be weary? Uh, weary is the idea of an inward spiritual exhaustion. Think of a candle burning out and flickering and just about burning out. That, that's what weary means. There's an inward spiritual exhaustion. There's a lot of things that can cause spiritual weariness. Maybe it's a perennial struggle with a sin that we're trying to hide. Uh, maybe it's unresolved shame over a past sin or failure. Maybe it's feeling like we're not good enough. Maybe it's the temptation to put on a proverbial mask and pretend like everything is okay when it's not. Maybe it's the temptation to believe the lie that we are alone and isolated in our pain. Those are all examples of what the word weary would include. But then we also see the word burdened. And the word burdened refers to external things that have been placed upon us. It feels as if you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. And when Jesus was originally sharing this message, the greatest external burden his audience was facing was the burden of religious uh, legalism. And we know that very clearly from Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, Jesus uses the same word for burden. It's a very rare Greek word. It's hardly used. So when he uses it a couple times in one gospel, they kind of interpret each other for how we're to understand it. And in Matthew 23, here's what Jesus says. Jesus said to the crowd and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do as they do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do the works they do. They're hypocrites. They preach, but they don't practice. And notice this, they tie up heavy burdens. They're hard to bear. And then they lay them on people's shoulders while they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. He says the religious leaders, what they were doing was they had this burden of religious legalism where they had all these lists of rules and regulations. They said, hey, if you want to be in the right standing with God, if you want to show that you, you got to do thousands of things. If you're not doing these things, your B list, God is looking down on you with disappointment. You're not good enough. You got to try harder, do better, and you got to live up and you got to be like us. Here's the standard. And if you're falling short, you stink and, and you need to reconsider your entire life. That's what they were doing. And they were placing this heavy burden of performance and legalism and saying, your value and, and acceptance before the Lord is completely based on your performance and achievement. And if, if that's the message you heard, guess what? You're going to feel spiritually weary and burdened because no one can bear that burden. And that's why so many people, when they leave other religions and come to Christianity, feel the profound relief because Christianity is the only religion that says you are accepted, therefore you serve, rather than you serve to be accepted. It flips the, the script. So there's the burden of religious legalism, but that's not the only burdens that we carry. And this word is purposefully broad. Burden can refer to pretty much any burden that you carry. 
a wayward child that you're grieving over, the loss of a loved one, grief in your life, a health struggle, the burden of a struggling marriage or a lost job, whatever it is, anything in life that weighs us down. If you resonated with these categories of weary or burdened, recognize that Jesus' invitation is for you. This passage reminds us that when Jesus sees weariness and burdens that resulted from living in a broken world, his response is not one of indifference and callousness. Jesus isn't looking down from heaven and saying, good, they get what they deserve. He's moved with compassion and gentleness and love. Now, I know that some of you might be a little skeptical of what I'm saying. As you look at your life, perhaps it feels as if Jesus has been calloused and indifferent to your pain. Um, when we see the burdens and trauma and pain in our life, maybe you sincerely struggle to see Jesus as a meek master. And if that's you, first of all, I'm sorry for the burdens you're carrying. Um, if we were to meet up, I, I could not pinpoint and tell you why God has allowed a certain burden or weariness in your life to exist. I'm not God. I don't have that perspective. But I can tell you one assured reason he did not allow it. And that's because he's indifferent or mean-spirited or calloused to the pain you feel. This passage tells us that Jesus is near the brokenhearted. The people he is most moved to help and respond to are those that are wearied and burdened and exhausted and looking for rest and refreshment and peace. And he wants to supply that peace. He wants to give us that rest. But here's the rub. The rest that Jesus offers to give us it's not always the rest that we expect. Sometimes when we think of rest, we think that rest is an alleviation of our circumstances. For me to experience rest, things have to change and I have to be delivered from this trial, this trauma, this temptation. Now here's the thing. Jesus does promise to give that kind of rest. He will. It's just not right now. That rest of being completely freed from the brokenness of living a fallen world, it comes in eternity. I think of what the author of Hebrews wrote to a spiritually weary congregation where he says, look forward to this future spiritual Sabbath day rest. It will come to all who faithfully follow Jesus. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. It's coming. God has secured. Jesus has secured that for you. It's just not, it's just not yet. So it is coming. It's just not yet. However, that doesn't mean that Jesus leaves us empty handed this side of eternity. He gives us rest here and now as well. It just looks a little bit different. Some of the rest that he offers, perhaps a piece of the rest is that you can be part of a spiritual family where you have brothers and sisters in Christ that can help bear your burden. My generation 180 students are sick of hearing me saying this, but one of my slogans is the best way to bear a burden is to share the burden. The best way to bear a burden is to share a burden. You need to share your burdens. And there are people here, there are friends, small group uh, members, brothers and sisters in Christ, pastors that want to share your burden, but sometimes it's pride in Satan that hold us back from doing that, okay? Maybe another aspect of the rest is the unassailable reality that your identity is grounded in Jesus. You don't have to find your identity in the broken wells of this world anymore. When our world is going bad places and everyone is confused of what our ultimate identity is grounded in, thank the Lord their identity is grounded in Jesus and nothing can change that. We can be confident of who we are, what we're here to do and where we're going. Something that a lot of people give anything to have. Maybe the rest is the promise 
that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. He's in the trenches, even when we don't feel it, but he's there with us and he invites us to come to the throne room to ask for grace in any moment that we need it. Maybe the rest is the promise that our pain is not purposeless. We talked about this at our young adult weekend yesterday, though we don't always see how God is taking the broken pieces of our lives and building a beautiful, oh my, what's the word? A be- broken pieces and you make it into a beautiful uh, mo- uh, mosaic. <laughs> there we go. The broken pieces that didn't match the, to- the tone of this part of the sermon. I'll just ignore that. The broken pieces of our life. He's taking those pieces and making a beautiful mosaic that we won't see to eternity, but we have the promise that he is. He's working it out for our good and our, our sanctification. Or, or perhaps it's just the rest of knowing that Jesus wants to meet us where we're at and give us the supernatural pieces of Philippians 4 that gets us through even in the dip, tempest of trials and tribulations we face. Ultimately, think of the rest he offers this way. Imagine you're standing at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. How many of you have ever been there? A couple people, okay. You're at the bottom of the Grand Canyon right on the Colorado River, and you know that you need to make it to the back Uh, to the top of the rim before nightfall. But it's a long journey up. It's almost a mile that you have to ascend in altitude and probably 12 miles of switchbacks. And let's say that you have a backpack that's been placed upon you filled with 100 pounds of rocks. As you're looking at that backpack, you're looking at the switchbacks and you're looking at your calves, you know there's no way you're gonna be making it back up to the top of the rim, okay? But let's say that at the bottom, Jesus meets you right there. And he offers to trade backpacks with you. He'll take your, your backpack filled with rocks and he'll give you a new, a new backpack. And in that backpack, there's food, water, energy supplements, and all the supplies you need to make the journey, okay? Now realize you still have a burden. You're still wearing something on your back. But rather than this burden being burdensome, this burden is easy and this yoke is light because it's actually there to help you finish the journey. Jesus doesn't, beam us up to the top of the rim. There's no beam me up, Scotty. Boom, we don't have to do the journey, okay? Now, we'll make it to the top, and that's eternity one day. But we have to faithfully complete the journey. And Jesus is our outfitter. And his burden is easy, his yoke is light, and he wants to give us everything that we need to finish the journey faithfully. He is compassionate, not calloused. So if you are burdened and heavy laden, go to Jesus. He wants to take your burden. One final perspective of Jesus. Jesus shows us that gentle person is humble, not arrogant, not haughty. In our passage, Jesus tells us that he's both gentle and humble in heart. Two virtues that are interwoven in Jesus' life. And the best picture we see of Jesus' humility would come later in Philippians 2 from the Apostle Paul. He tells us, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Realize that the pinnacle of biblical humility is putting the needs of others before the interest of self. It's thinking less of yourself and thinking more of others. And that is a key part of gentle. You'll never be gentle if you think of yourself first and foremost. And the reality is, think of how radical this is. The only person in the world, in the, in the universe, who, who should not need to be humble is Jesus. 
He is God. He's the architect, the, 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 the creator and sustainer of the universe. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is so transcendent, so holy, so categorically different than us, then we should cry out as the psalmist in Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him and the sum of man that you care for him? We have no right to a relationship with King Jesus, but he chose to love us, forgive us, sanctify us, and create a way for us to have a right relationship with him at great personal cost to him. That's the pinnacle of biblical gentleness and humility. He did because he's a meek master. And he deeply and desperately longs for a right relationship for us to have with him. He's a spiritual savior who does whatever it takes to cure us from the disease of sin. He is a gentle savior worth serving. Now, I know this was not the sermon you were expecting on gentleness, right? This was a surprise. Uh, But it was intentional. Because gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. Which means if I just gave you a list of five ways to be a more gentle spouse or parent, I wouldn't be doing you any favors. I'd be giving you fake fruit and a staple gun. Okay, it's not about behavior modification. It's about abiding in Jesus, the true vine. And as we abide in Jesus, the true vine, we as branches will bear much fruit. Can't bear fruit apart from Jesus. So if you want to bear the fruit of gentleness, you have to understand the gentle Savior himself. The more we see the heart of Jesus the more we experience the gentleness of Jesus, the more we do those things, the more we will be transformed. So by all means this week, strive to be meek, not weak. Strive to be forgiving, not furious. Strive to be compassionate, not callous. Strive to be whatever my fourth point was. (laughs) Humble, not haughty. Strive to be that. However, don't view it as items on a spiritual to-do list. See them as aspirations on a spiritual to-be list. Because we want to be more like Jesus. Jesus is a meek master. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this challenging word. Um, We recognize that it's only by experiencing your meekness that we find the strength to be meek ourselves. We don't live in a meek or gentle culture. We naturally, because of our sin, are not meek or gentle people. But Father, as we abide in the true vine, allow us to bear much fruit. Allow us to be a refreshing model of meekness in a very broken and hostile world. And Jesus, if we have any distorted depictions of what you're like and how you treat us, allow those to be assuaged from our mind today. Allow us to rest in the gentle care of our loving Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.